Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 105. Hey everyone, my beautiful friends, it's your friend Avanti and I'm here in my hotel room talking to you as I'm away in Europe for a post-treatment trip that I planned with my husband Kanwar to celebrate what has been a very, very long year of a healing journey with breast cancer. And so I just arrived in Berlin after being in Stockholm for a few days and we'll be going to London from here before I head back to Chicago at the end of the week. And you know, whenever I'm away on vacation, I love to people watch. There's something so interesting about observing people in other cities and countries. I find that I really learn a lot about the people by taking in how they dress and speak and move. It's a real learning experience when I'm somewhere else other than home. Watching people in their home environments and eavesdropping on their conversations teaches me so much about how they live and how they relate to others, what's important to them. For example, in Stockholm, I found that people are friendly, but quite reserved in how they relate to foreigners. They also are very concerned about the world around them and their impact, their personal individual actions and how those actions have an impact upon the world. Sustainability in every sense is extremely important to them. I also observed that they're very fit as they walk or bicycle everywhere, regardless of the weather. It was literally pouring rain outside and people were biking and walking as if it was just a little sprinkle that they didn't even notice. Movement is a part of everyday life in Stockholm. Walking to and from work or school, to the grocery store, to run errands, to meet friends and family. Movement isn't something they reserve for the gym or for, quote, working out. It's part of the way they live. They make it easy and full of ease or easeful because they create daily routines that include movement. It's also an approach to movement that my friend Tara Stiles has towards yoga and whom I'm joined by today on the podcast to discuss how yoga can be a path to inner safety as we continue our exploration of hormones and our health this month on the podcast. In addition to being one of my favorite people, Tara is the co-founder of Strala Yoga, a best-selling author and well-being expert who has revolutionized yoga for millions of people, transforming a practice so often seen as dogmatic and guru-based into everyday movement that supports ease and well-being. She is a sought-after speaker on topics of entrepreneurship, health, and well-being, and has authored several best-selling books, including Clean Mind, Clean Body. In our conversation, we discuss the reality of how yoga is commonly taught and practiced in the West, which can actually be very trauma-inducing, and the transformative potential of trauma-informed yoga, which instead creates a safe and healing environment for anyone dealing with trauma. Tara also emphasizes the need for creating space in our bodies and our minds, using breath and easeful movement 
to feel and experience our emotions, which ultimately helps people to move beyond trauma-induced behaviors like isolation and over-perfectionism. We also explore the idea that healing doesn't have to be hard. Rather, small, consistent self-care practices can lead to significant improvements in health. You know, I remember the first time Tara was on the podcast almost two years ago after I sent her a quick message over direct message on Instagram. And I never imagined back then that she would be on my podcast now for the third time and that we would become dear friends who would travel to Iceland together and meet in Chicago and New York and talk and text all the time. And it's this bond that we've created because we both have so much respect for each other and the work that we're doing in the world to help people feel better and heal themselves. I hope you enjoy my beautiful conversation with my beautiful friend, Tara Stiles, about yoga for inner safety as we explore hormones and our health. Well, hello, Tara. I am so excited to talk to you as always. Oh my gosh, you're the best. And you always have so many good ideas to keep chatting more. So thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, no, thank you for doing this with me. I know I saw you two weeks ago in New York City and it was so much fun to go to an event with you and kind of just hang out in the back of the room, even though I wasn't doing yoga. But, you know, this conversation that we're going to have today kind of came out of a personal conversation that we were both having about yoga, trauma-informed, trauma-induced yoga. And I thought it was a super interesting perspective. And I thought, let's talk about it on the podcast. Because in November, when this podcast will go live, we're talking about hormones in our health. And obviously, Mm -hmm. trauma creates a stress response. It's all about hormones and hormonal control. And so much of what we do in yoga helps to regulate our nervous system and our hormones. So I thought this would be a really interesting sort of perspective to come from. And so let's just jump in. Yeah. Sounds great. Like I always learn so much when I chat with you. So thank you. (laughs) I I feel it. And then you tell me what it all means. And then I learn more and then I can, you know, put it all together. So thank you. No, I feel the same way about you. I think that we just have really stimulating conversations. Like a lot of our conversations are over text, but then when we're on the phone, we'll end up, you know, talking for an hour, hour and a half. And we like scheduled 30 minutes together. And it's because I think we just have so many interesting perspectives. And then we sort of kind of just go back and forth. And I know I always have so many ahas with you too. So I love talking to you, Tara. Thank you for always stimulating that new perspective in me too. So. But today, you know, I wanted to talk about trauma. So I would love for us to start sort of from your perspective of given what you do being a yoga guide, you know, a yoga teacher, having your own yoga practice, and also doing a lot of work in trauma-informed yoga. I know you and Mike have actually talked to me before about some of the things that you've been doing. We'll get to that too. But what is your perspective on trauma and how it you know, affects the body and the mind. Would you say is your perspective on that? Oh my gosh. Well, I think first of all, I've just been so lucky to be able to have the chances over and over, especially with having a studio, but traveling and getting people together and really seeing how people react to not just the yoga class, but being in a space, how the space feels, walking around, talking with each other, all of these things that sort of go into from what I'm trying to create the best that I can is a a healing opportunity. So I know that when I first started, I feel the same way now, but when I 
first started creating these spaces, I really wanted to create spaces where people felt safe and good and welcomed and invited and all of these things. And I wasn't really thinking so much about the heaviness that can be trauma. And I especially about around the conversations of trauma now, you know, everybody's sort of talking about trauma in this very amazing way. You know, we weren't really talking about it as a wellness world, even just a couple of years ago. But I was always interested in helping people feel good and comfortable and welcomed and relaxed in the yoga class and also before and after and any time where they were sort of around me. And, you know, through the years and through mainly meeting people like you and other doctors and experts that are specific in, in healing and health and really all these more specific things, they would reinforce this idea of creating a good environment, creating a, a class where people aren't forcing or pushing themselves. And, you know, my sort of basic idea of I just want to help people feel good and better started to get more confident in me and refine more and studying these things like Ayurveda. I've learned so much from you and continue to learn. Obviously, there's lifetimes of learning and Tai Chi and Shiatsu really state this super clearly. So it's really been energizing for me to look at the people as they come in and see how they are sort of naturally healing themselves and feeling that safeness that really you don't get when you feel traumatized all the time. And that's something that I learned when I got more language around trauma is if you had a trauma in your life, an, an incident, you could be still expressing that hypervigilance and that stress and that tension really all of the time. And, and yoga, along with anything, can either reinforce that hypervigilance and that stress and that tension, or it can create a safe space for you to come back to feeling like yourself. So I would see a lot of people doing these strange, in a way, strange to me behaviors, like whether it's isolating themselves or, you know, even picking faces or pulling hair, all of these things that I've learned much more about and been able to volunteer with different organizations that are an, an effect of trauma, sort of self-preservation and seeing those people over time come up to me and say, oh, I don't do this thing anymore. And I, then I would learn about what that face picking or hair pulling was or, oh, my attitude toward my eating suddenly shifted. So I was getting all of this amazing feedback. And, you know, as a well-being practitioner, we never say this cured that, you know, or I cured you sort of we're all healing ourselves. But it was sort of happening. And and then I started going and learning more about the, the science of it and seeing, wow, all of these things that I'm interested in is actually helping people with their trauma. And that's pretty cool. Right. And so what, you were, what you're sort of tapping into is that you were observing your, the students coming into a workshop, a class, whatever, and just observing how they were moving, how they looked in their body, their, you know, sort of coping habits, let's call them, right, of of, you know, these different things, you know, picking their skin or pulling the hair or even probably like limping. I mean, because sometimes trauma can look like an injury, which becomes, oh, okay, something happened maybe physically. But so much of the physical I find is actually emotional, psychological, mental that then shows up in the physical way that we move our bodies, like you said. And so I think the next question for you then is that, you know, in your experience, then how does trauma manifest in the body? You mentioned a couple ways, but what are some things that you have noticed over the years of teaching so many thousands of people? I'm asking this because I think that for a lot of the people listening, you know, a lot of times we don't even realize that we're storing trauma in our bodies. 
And so sometimes hearing some of the observations of someone like you who has worked with so many people might spark something within someone listening of like, well, I do that. Maybe I should explore this a little bit and think about what could be causing this beyond a physical injury, right? So what are some of the ways that you've seen that you know trauma manifests in the body and, and how do you think that we store trauma in our bodies physically? Oh, that's so fascinating to me. It's it's so cool to look at people and how they move and how they, all the little decisions that that you make. I mean, we're all making decisions every moment of the day, whether we're aware of it or not. And having a practice like yoga hopefully puts you in a place, especially if you're leading it, where you're super interested in those choices that you're making and the choices that other people are making. And a few right off the bat that maybe listeners can say, oh gosh, wait a minute, I'm, I identify with that. One is hypervigilance. And this person that often comes into the room and, you know, sort of looks around and, and I don't want to say, you know, everybody is, is, is like this, but you know, the person that says I need to get my spot and there it is, it's over there. And, you know, sometimes that could be okay and totally healthy and just a happy place, but, you know, needing to have that one place and and needing to have your all of your things lined up exactly and almost needing to feel in control of what's happening in the space what's happening around you to a degree where it's causing you that sort of internal stress so i think everyone need, everyone's always we're always trying to control our environment and that's probably a human thing but I think also we all know if we are feeling stressed by how we're how we are in a space and I think that's one that I see quite a bit. Another one is, you know, it's not always the shy person, it's not always the person that's hiding or picking or pulling or with the, you know, the big baggy sweater in the back that doesn't want to show themselves, but that could often be someone who's been through some big stuff and and for me I tend to just give people space and put myself around if I can help out with a person like that. But often it's sort of the the person who's overexpressing themselves, you know, that's in the the perfect outfit or, you know, trying to control their appearance in a way or or really trying to do the the pose perfectly. And and again, I think it's easier to see the little bit shy person than it is to see the almost over perfectionist person, because in a way our society says, well, that's the goal, you know, and of course nothing is really the goal except to find your own balance. So I think a lot of people, especially in today's wellness world are using or expressing their trauma through that, you know, perfect outfit or that perfect, you know, even the nails matching the outfit. And, you know, some of that, again, can be fun. And I don't mean to say if you do that, you're traumatized. But, you know, just being aware of of how you are expressing your body and expressing your clothing and, and also wanting people to take you in. I think that's also an interesting way to look at yourself because we're in these groups. And when we put ourselves in a class or online with each other, we're, we're in a way wanting to get feedback from how we're dressing and looking and putting ourselves together. So I think that hyper put togetherness is also a sense of maybe there's something to look at there. There's, there's so much. And then, and then you get into how you move, you know, are you anticipating the movements? Are you the first one in down dog every time? Are you the last one? And, and what's going on there? And and I think it's really fascinating to, to look at our habits and not feel like, oh gosh, there's all these things wrong with me. So much is wrong with me instead of looking at our habits and saying, well, maybe there's something here to explore and maybe I can learn and grow. And 
there's nothing wrong with me. I'm not a bad person because I'm the first one in down dog or I have a perfect outfit or I'm in the back hiding. It's just that's where I'm at. That's what's going on. And maybe there's room for all of us to grow within where we are right now. Yeah. No, I think that those are really, really astute observations. And again, like you said, it's not to say that there's anything wrong with those kinds of behaviors or tendencies or habits. It's like you said, it's taking a step back and maybe examining and just reflecting on why is that so important to me? Why why do I always go to the back of the room? Why do I always go to the front of the room? Why do I need to be set up in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think that those are really, really interesting observations. How do you think we store trauma physically? And this is like probably like a really big question, but like how, how from your experience, again, do you f- see that people store the trauma in their bodies? I think it's pretty fascinating to see the extremes of, you know, and and you taught me so much about this, but the either the too much or the too little. So often it's really easy for us to see the too much, the too stress, the overworking, the forcing, the pushing, the struggling, the sort of, you know, again, we reward that behavior. So we all kind of look at that. That's the shiny object, right? But then there's also the lack of the too little, the the sort of inability to pick ourselves up and hold ourselves together. If you're in a plank pose and and you can do it, but you just uh, collapse because life's so hard right now, that's the sort of too little energy on that side. So I think it's really interesting, just those two really big extremes, that too much effort, too much tension and stress. And it comes out not just in your muscles and your body, but in your face and your expressions and your fingertips and all of that. And, and that's so fascinating. And whether you're in a yoga class or walking down the street, we can all, it's easier to see it in other people. We can play around and observe other people and say, oh, are they too much or too little or right in, right in the middle of balance? And, and that too little is that sort of retreating and you're there, you want to be a part of it, but it's just hard to hold yourself together at the moment. Yeah. And and the the facial expressions is something that I always tap into when I'm teaching yoga or doing yoga therapy with someone is I'm watching the person's face because that tells me so much about are they feeling at ease? Are they feeling strong? Are they feeling comfortable? Right? Some of those principles of yoga of, you know, being in the pose is not about the pose, but it's about ease. It's about stability. It's about strength balanced with that ease. And if if you're not feeling easeful, it shows up on your face right away. It shows in your breath, right? And so I think those are some of the cues. But I think that facial expression is a really, really important tell almost that you can also observe in yourself. You know, if you can catch yourself and you feel not that you have to look in a mirror, because the whole mirror thing in yoga classes I, I just find problematic in so many ways. But I you know, I do think that even just tuning into what does your face feel like? Are you like tensing up all your muscles in your face? Are you clenching your teeth and your jaws, right? Are you squinting? Are you furrowing your brow? Like all of those things can give you some information about how you're feeling and is there trauma there or or is there something that you need to look at and, and examine or reflect upon? So I think that that's a really interesting point that you're bringing up. So let me jump back for a second, because I know you you kind of started with talking about how your interest in, in trauma-informed yoga, I mean, 
I think it's it's such a natural extension to the way that you approach yoga. But you know what sort of really sparked your interest to sort of get more training, dive deeper into this sort of area of study that has become so popular in in the past, you know, five, 10 years. And not that it's popular, but I think it's really an interesting application and view of how to use yoga. Of course, we've been doing that for thousands of years in yoga. That's the whole point of yoga. But from a Western perspective of like bringing that, that idea into yoga, what sparked your interest to go deeper in trauma-informed yoga? Yeah, I wanted to understand what was happening with people. Again, I was really, I think I've always just wanted to create a refuge in a way. I loved yoga and I saw a lot of intense yoga happening and it's great if you want that, but I didn't want that and people I was meeting didn't want that. So I think sort of subconsciously I was creating this place that people could feel better and relax and at ease and all of that. And then when good things started happening for these people over time and they would share with me their stories, it was almost ridiculous. I mean, you know, you're, you help so many people with so many things and they share these stories and and you can't really repeat them to people who don't understand because it sounds like you're making it up. It's like, oh gosh, you know, <laughs> Lindsay went from eating donuts every day to cooking at home and making her buffet and now she's an Ayurveda in training, you know, and, and this person dumped her boyfriend who was abusing her and is now on her own and happy or this person, you know, just so right. many testimonial yeah. after testimonial. Yeah. And yeah. I just, yeah, I wanted to know what's going on. So I started asking people that were a lot of the times older and wiser. And I went to doctor friends of mine that were integrative and I would ask questions about the stress response and all of these things. And and a lot of these doctors were friends with me already because they liked my approach and they weren't necessarily telling me scientifically what I was doing, but they liked it because I was doing or leading in a way that backed up everything that they practice and, and taught as well. So I just looked around. And I said, well, I'm really lucky. I'm already connected to all these super smart doctors and practitioners. And I want to I want to learn more. I want to see what's happening. Not, not necessarily to talk to the students coming at, oh, this is your trauma, you know, because that puts a different angle on it. But just so I would have more of an understanding of so I could do it better, really, if there was anything to share with with people that were coming in in a different way or any way I could adjust my leading to be more effective. Yeah. And so one thing that I'm thinking about that, you know, sort of sparked this whole conversation was that you mentioned this idea of trauma-induced yoga from your experience in your early days of, you know, coming to yoga, learning yoga. And I've actually had this conversation with Mike also with your partner, and he's told me about some of the trauma-induced yoga that he, you know, practiced early on when he first came to yoga. Can you tell me about that perspective of this, you know, trauma-induced versus trauma-informed? Because I feel like so much of that is part of your story of, of how you started leading in the way that you do. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's bringing me right back to all these, tra all these trauma triggers too. <laughs> yeah. In a funny way. It, it's, it's great now because there's so much more support around ease and harmony and all the things that you teach and that the healing arts teach. But, you know, they were also there when I started, but I remember sharing, you know, move how it feels nice to you. Don't push your force and getting so much blowback from my yoga teacher friends and really feeling like, okay, I need to isolate myself and just do this because I know it's a good idea. I believe in it, but there, and there still isn't within everything. It's not just yoga. 
but there's so much yoga out there coming from the systems that are passed down. You know, it could be from a very well-meaning teacher that's teaching a style that at its root of what the style is, is creating more stress and tension. So you can put a flower on the wall and say, everybody's welcome. But if you're if you feel like warrior two with your arms straight and your hips on a certain level is the only way to do it and your body's not doing it, that's going to cause some psychological issues unless you're a very strong psychological person and you just say, well, this doesn't make any sense. And then you leave. <laughs> you know? right. So there's right. a lot of people that fit into that category too. But a lot of people come to yoga because they're vulnerable. And if the class makes them feel like they're not good enough unless these certain things can happen, unless their body can do these things, or unless they look like the teacher or go to the retreats or have the pants or whatever it is. But unfortunately, baked into a lot of these Western, really traditional carried style, carried on styles of yoga is trauma. It's in the style. So, you know, it's really hard to take a Bikram yoga class and not be traumatized. <laughs> you know, it's really hard to take an Ashtanga yoga class and not be reinforcing that trauma, even if you have an amazing, loving, kind teacher. The style is telling you, force your leg, straighten your leg harder, longer, faster. Don't listen to your body. Don't drink water now. These are ridiculous things that doctors say that doesn't make any sense. But people get addicted to it because it feels good because we're addicted to that stress, that cortisol response. It's similar to like surviving a little car accident at the end and you feel euphoric. So it's a big cycle and it's hard to get people out of it, but it's great to have these conversations to learn and share more. You know, we have so many people that are sort of escaping themselves from these styles that find us and they find other things too, but they always share their stories of whether it's horrible abuse or just beating themselves up from the inside out. And unfortunately, yoga for a long time in America, as far as I my understanding has been a place of of traumatizing people. And it doesn't need to be like that for sure. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with you. And I think I think your point is well taken that, you know, really anything can become trauma inducing when there's too many rules and rigidity around how things have to be done. Not that there shouldn't be certain ways of doing things. I mean, I'm a doctor and yeah, there's certain ways you have to do surgeries and this, that, and the other. But there's also this piece of there's, there's these things that we do in our lives that again, it should be up to how are you feeling? And I think that's part of what you're talking about is that you can have this style of yoga and follow it, right? And follow the prompts and the cues from the, the guide and at the same time, you can tap into how you are feeling and respect that too and honor that too. I think what happens is that in some of these styles of yoga, it becomes very difficult to actually listen to yourself because of all of the, the stuff around it of like, you have to do it this way or the, the dogma, the rigor, the conversations about like, you know, have to point your toe this way and move your hips this way. And like, there's no room for you to adjust to how you're feeling in your body. Right. And I also think the other thing that happens here is that many of these styles have over time sort of gone away from the original purpose, which is, you know, we both know that it's all about the energy and we're going to get there in a second when we talk about Tai Chi, but it's all about energy moving through your body. It's less for me from my understanding and my experience about the physical form 
but the energetic form and the physical form allows us to get into that energetic form. And so that's why I think what you're saying is so true is because it becomes so trauma-inducing because if you have to be in this perfect anatomical physical form, everyone's body is different in how it's formed, you know, physically, but energetically, we all have the same blueprint, you know? And so when you can adjust for the energetic, it becomes much more easeful, much more trauma-informed, much more peaceful, much more calming, all much more healing, all of those things, right? So yeah, I think your point is really well taken. And so I would love to know, because you know, I think so much of what's so interesting about the way you approach yoga is that you have this blend of talking about Tai Chi and Shiatsu, all these different forms of energy movement in addition, and you and you've fused that with yoga, which I think is so interesting. Talk about, you know, your approach to sort of trauma-informed yoga using that blend of Tai Chi, Shiatsu with yoga? Oh gosh. Well, I feel like, again, I've just been so lucky in my life to meet really awesome people that tell me I should learn more about things. So you are my Ayurveda pillar and my healing pillar. And our friend Sam Berlin is my Shiatsu pillar and Mike is Tai Chi. And you know that goes along with learning and practicing and all of that as well. But when when Mike first started telling me, and I was so mad at him because he's been doing Tai Chi his whole life, you know, and then eventually, you know, ten years into all this, he says, you know, I think I think what you like about yoga isn't so much the poses, it's the continuous flow, and and how you're trying to get people to essentially do the thing, but listen to themselves, do it in a way that feels respectful and calm and at ease. I think you would sort of figure that out in a much clearer way if you kind of looked at Tai Chi. And I'm, I think, where you been? <laughs> you know, what the heck? <laughs> What's going on? So, you know, I would say in, in queuing, and I would even do this myself, if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't. I think that's a really amazing sort of guideline for so many of this. But Tai Chi takes that and grows it up a little bit and says, notice how you feel and respond to what you find. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's better. And then and then just beyond the, you know, the language and all of that, it's the there's a real way of moving well from your center with softness every step of the way. So you can do that with your yoga movements, with your walking with any exercise as well. And it takes the yoga forms, which I love so much. You can really be on two feet or one foot or on the ground standing in all these different ways. And I think we all really need to move our bodies in that yoga way because we're sitting a lot and standing a lot and being in one place a lot. So taking that vocabulary and expanding it in this way of softness and ease and continuous movement without moving fast, but moving with your breath and waiting for your breath to move you. That was huge news to me. I mean, I always would take an inhale and move my arms up just with, you know, synchronized breath, like a synchronized swimmer. And then when I started really practicing yoga in this Tai Chi way, I felt more like everything you talk about, which is wait for your breath to move you sort of all of a sudden creating this relationship with yourself right there. It doesn't become this mental effort. It's, oh my gosh, I'm waiting for that next breath to come. And then when it comes, I'm going to take my arms up, but it's helping me take my arms up. And that gives, like you said, this automatic, you feel the energy. You don't have to wait for it or pretend about it to come. There's no fake it till you make it. When you wait for that breath to move you, 
you feel the energy moving through you right away. And we all can do that. And same thing with shiatsu, leaning on yourself and leaning on each other in these places. And and it's also just so healing to touch yourself in a nice way, to let your body not be annoyed with yourself, but to relax into yourself and, you know, squeeze your foot with your thumb or lean an elbow into your thigh and start to naturally lean on yourself and lean on the floor, let the floor support you instead of a lot of times with yoga, I see people kind of resisting the floor and even there's cues like try to push the floor away. And I'm like, we, we can't actually do that. <laughs> so so there, there's so much to learn from the, the healing arts and they really, the healing arts, every book I've read, every person I've talked to say it really directly and they say what to do. We just have to do it. And when we do it, we feel like you said, the energy just flowing through us and, and with other people if we're doing it in connection with folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one thing I want to go back to you said is that what you learned with Tai Chi is about moving and then responding to what you find. What do you mean by that? Gosh, yeah, this this huge opportunity. I mean, it's really helped slow down myself and my leading as well, just letting your breath move you. And instead of just picking that, because I feel like if you just do what feels good, not all the times, not all the time what feels good is the right thing for you. It's just like, oh, right. I'm going to eat all candy. You know exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine actually came to my class. This was about 15 years ago. And she said to me, Tara, if I, after high lunge, get back to down dog, however it feels good to me, I'm going to walk out the door and get back in bed. And so I knew I had a little bit of a problem with how I was describing things. But this this moving well and respond to what you find, when you when you focus your energy on moving from your center, letting your breath move you and moving well, your body, your mind, your emotions, you get information. Your body says, oh my gosh, I'm feeling like this. My my insides feel off or my muscles feel sore or my life's a mess or my life's great. Get this really only the information that you could only get from the inside. It's sort of like opening up the encyclopedia for yourself. And if you're ready to to have a look, it's all there. And slowing down enough so you can listen to it and take it in a little bit and then respond probably with movement to what you find. Move a little more, move a little less in this direction or that direction. And it's not about getting into your pigeon pose and doing the most advanced version you can do all the time. It's about getting into your pigeon pose, as silly as that sounds. And you know three or four variations, but moving slow enough so you can choose the one that actually feels most nourishing for you right now instead of just, oh, I can do the hard one. Let me just do that one. This episode is brought to you by Vimergy. You know, over the past eight months, I've been asked by so many people what I've been doing to help myself through the difficult journey of a breast cancer diagnosis. And while I credit so much of my healing to Western medical treatments of chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation, and the integration of using food as medicine, acupuncture, meditation, and time in nature, there's another tool that I know has been absolutely critical, and that's the addition of supplements. Because the reality is that in this modern world, it's not easy to get all of the nutrients you need through food alone. And with the colder months and the holidays approaching, taking supplements to boost energy and support health is even more important. That's why I like products by Vimergy. Their products are non-GMO, gluten-free, soy-free, vegan, and paleo-friendly. 
and are rigorously clinically researched, which means that you can feel confident in their formulations and ingredients. I especially like their magnesium glycinate supplement, which I take daily to support sleep. Let Vimergy's products help take care of you while you take care of everything else. Visit Vimergy.com and enter code Avanti-Vim, V-I-M, at checkout to get 5% off your first order. That's Vimergy, V-I-M-E-R-G-Y.com, code Avanti-Vim. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So what's coming up for me is a couple of things, is that this is why I love talking to you, by the way, (laughs) because it's so much of what I teach in Ayurveda is that it's this self-awareness, right? It's having that self-awareness along the way, not just at the end of a pose or between poses, but it's through every movement is what you're talking about. And it also brings up something that I learned, you know, years ago, this is going to sound a little random, but you guys will understand what I'm trying to get to, which is, you know, I remember when my kids were back in in high school, they're now, you know, 25, 22, but like when they were in 13, 14 years old and, you know, all this texting and all this like quickness of like quick responding and all this kind of stuff was going on. And I remember talking to someone who's a therapist and she suggested that we start writing letters to slow down the pace rather than always texting or emailing, like writing a letter to someone, writing a card to someone to create some space. And what what's coming up for me is you're talking about this idea of moving well and then allowing yourself to respond to what you find is creating that space between shooting off an email and maybe taking a moment and writing it out longhand and putting a stamp on it and putting the address and putting it in the mailbox, right? You're creating a little space for some awareness, for some thought, some reflection. Um, And again, this is not like, I mean, that's the extreme, but I think that's kind of what you're getting at is that's what's coming up for me is just create those moments of self-awareness along the way is what you mean by responding to what you find. Oh yeah. I love that. Now I want to write you a letter. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me Back in the early days of our Soho studio, there was a lot of young people coming around and I felt like a big sister to a lot of these girls in their early 20s. And, you know, it's that kind of phase in life where after class, you could go out and and get into trouble or you could go out and do something nice. So I thought maybe I could create a fun activity. And we made these posters that said, every inhale creates space, every exhale moves you in, you are a space maker. <laughs> and, and we went out and sort of postered them around town with, with some tape and, and that was fun. But I think that's, that's really so much of what I'm always trying to, to do and also learn more and explore more about that creating space. And I was thinking about it the other day, just sitting with Mike. We, we actually just in the morning, we usually you know, get to work right away and whatever. And we always say, oh, we should go and have a coffee someday. And you'd be proud of us. So yesterday we went and had a coffee at a, at a restaurant. And, you know, it was like these silly little things. And, and I sat there, you know, I was thinking about how creating space for yourself and your practice is also a form of self-respect and respecting other people. 
And and it really changed it for me like yet again. Like the last thing I want to do is disrespect anybody or disrespect myself too. So if I'm moving slow enough that I notice how I feel and I can respond, sort of like walking around with self-respect. And when you walk around with self-respect, you're aware of other people. So you're more aware of their feelings. You're more aware of making little guesses about what people are going through. You know, you can move your body in different ways. You can have a good reaction with somebody or a bad reaction. And really just, again, changed my whole experience of that and and just fun with strangers walking around a city or a town and and kind of trying to do my best to navigate and and respect everybody at the same time. So I think that's a whole way we can practice this stuff really all the time. Yeah. I think that idea of space is really, really important just in, in life in general, but especially with what we're talking about of this idea of trauma-informed yoga. And so let's get into more specifics about trauma-informed yoga. Like what are some of the principles of trauma-informed yoga that are really important to think about? Not only if you're guiding other people, because I know a lot of people who are listening to this are, are yoga guides from your community, from my community, but also if you're trying to do some trauma-informed yoga practice for yourself. Like let's say you're at home, you know, following along one of your classes that you do on your app on the Strala Home Yoga app, right? What are some of the principles that are really important to think about in this idea of trauma-informed yoga, would you say? I think something really interesting, and at first when you were saying that I was thinking this really applies if you're leading a class or really in the leadership position, but I think it really applies for for all of us is creating the space and having really no beginning, no end to your practice in this way and allowing yourself to start when you're ready to start and start in a way of I'm not not doing my yoga and now I am doing my yoga. But when you decide to begin with this breath to take better care of yourself, and I think that's humongous. And I know when I, when I create spaces or go to spaces and lead a class, it feels so good because I know I'm there to take good care of myself. So it sort of has become really joyful to do that. But I know that I can do that in my own practice every day. It's not just, okay, I'm going to feel better when I get on my yoga mat and then take that breath. I can start to take better care of myself when I wake up in the morning or somebody wakes up and says, okay, I'm going to wake up, brush my teeth take a shower, whatever, and then I'm going to have that yoga practice. So you can start feeling better when you start thinking about that yoga practice. And maybe that means for you slowing down a little bit and you take your shower, you can still do it in the same amount of time that you do. Slowing down, I think really isn't even about slowing down. It's about moving better. So you don't bump into things and sort of waste time. So I think that that idea of, of not having a beginning or an end, having it really continue whenever you remember is something really wonderful. And then during practice, I think it's really important to move in a way that's nice to yourself. And for a lot of people, I think that's really hard, especially when you're going through something, but moving in a way where you're not harming yourself at least, or noticing when you are and, and having that practice be okay. I'm, I'm doing that thing that I do to sort of give myself a little abuse or I'm being bad to myself or I'm harming myself or I'm pushing or forcing in this way and saying, okay, that's all right. I'm just going to back up a little bit and try again. So whatever you're doing, I think with that non-harming lens is a good start. Yeah. 
what what I'm thinking about is this idea of creating safety, right? The space, but then another S would be creating safety for yourself, right? And so, because so much of trauma is this, like you said, hypervigilance, this trauma, this feeling that we store somewhere in our body, in our mind, and it creates a stress response, right? A lot of times it's because we don't feel safe because of the trauma that we've, we've, experienced, right? We don't feel safe in our bodies many times. You know, there's that dissociation that can happen. It's very common in any kind of trauma survivor and any kind of trauma experience. You you will dissociate from your body if it was something physical. So I think creating safety in movement. So again, if you're guiding, you want to create a safe environment. And also if you're just following, if you're doing it yourself, you want to create safety. And so I think that all kind of goes together is that some of the space will create safety, right? Slowing down, tuning into how are you feeling and responding to that, right? So if you're pushing, 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 that is not creating safety. You're creating that more stress. You're feeling it in your face. It kind of all comes together, right? That's what I'm thinking about is this idea of safety. What do you think about that idea of safety? Yeah, that's safety is if you're not safe, nothing can happen. I mean, I think that's the hugest thing. And, and like you said, it's created by what you're doing. You know, you can have these rules on the wall. And I, I know in all of our teacher trainings, a lot of folks say, well, we have a waiver and that takes care of it. It's like, no, it doesn't take care of it. We have a safety waiver or, uh, you know, I ask somebody how they're feeling and that really doesn't take care of it either. It's it's in what you're doing in the experience. If you're a guide, it's in how you are moving around the room. It's in how, how are you treating yourself and how are you interacting with others? Where's your body position? Are you too close? Are you not close enough? Are you only talking to the chatty people in the room? Are you ignoring anybody? How are you making people feel included to the best of your ability without being too hypervigilant yourself? <laughs> and for for someone practicing as well, I think there's so much incredible support that comes from your breath. And as soon as you, I think this comes back to your wonderful idea of creating space and self-awareness and awareness of others. As soon as you crawl down to the ground to do your practice and you sort of give it up to your breath and you let your breath be in charge, let your breath move you, you're going to be safe because your breath is not going to tell you to hurt yourself. Your breath is not going to say, your pose isn't good enough, push further. Your breath is going to tell you like a really great friend exactly what you need to do, not just to do less, but to progress and to achieve more in a very safe way. So you can't go wrong if you not just listen to your breath, but allow your breath to be your guide and to be in charge and move your body and move your whole self physically and emotionally and and be open to the fact that what you find physically may be related to what's going on with you emotionally. And you don't need to try to figure it all out. Just be open to it and move through it and, and really see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're talking about is this idea that breath is really sort of that bridge between the body and the mind, because how you're breathing will tell you what is getting in the way, right? In the sense of your movement if your breath is is strained, is not easeful, 
you can take a moment with that space and say, hmm, what's going on? Is this something that I'm you know, thinking about? Is it in my mind? Is it something in my body? What's going on, right? So you can tune into your breath. And so I think this idea of your breath being the guide uh, in yoga, in any kind of yoga practice, whether you're trying to be, you know, trying to come at it from a trauma-informed perspective or not, I think just in general, that's a really good piece of advice is to tune into your breath and use that as your guide, really. You know, even though you might be hearing the cues from a teacher, you know, a guide, a physical person in the room, you can still tune into your own breath as that inner guide to tell you what's really going on with yourself, right? Uh, it's, it's not easy, though, I have to say. It's not, it's not an easy, it takes practice and it takes a lot of practice. It takes sort of that willingness to not be perfect, to not have to push and not to strain. And also, I think the willingness to not have something happen, <laughs> right? Mm, <laughs> like, right. oh my gosh, this is going to happen or that's going to happen. Or I'm, you know, I'm going to do yoga to heal myself, you know, or whatever it is. That can become a lot of pressure too, I think. I found that with a lot of people that I, I've helped, that they, they come into yoga looking for the healing. And if they don't feel like they're getting it right away, then they're like, what am I doing wrong? Absolutely. There's making me laugh. I was just in Berlin and I did this event at a friend's studio the night before a two-day intensive. And this woman came with her friend and she was totally like the friend that came along. you know. <laughs> yeah. And I could tell she took herself very seriously. I just I had some guesses about her that maybe she had a big job or something. And I kind of yeah. guessed that she had back pain from the way she was moving. And I, I came up to her and I said, how are you feeling? how's your back doing? She goes, how do you know my back hurts? I said, well, your hand's on your back right now. So that's a clue. But I said, you know, we're going to do some rolling around and, and maybe just get into it a little bit if, if, you, if you feel drawn or whatever. So she was so excited to, to be able to get down to the ground, first of all, and rolling around. And by the end of the little event, her back felt better. So she wanted to come to the weekend. And she says, I've never really done yoga before. Is this all right? This is a yoga teacher thing, whatever. I said, just come. You'll, you know, if you don't want to do the yoga, you can sit on the ground and just roll around for your back, whatever you want. I mean, you know me, I just invite everybody. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. So she comes and and she does all the yoga. She's, you know, very good at it. She's very strong. She can do the things. And at the end of the two days, she said, you know, it's so weird. I don't feel like anything happened here. This is a thing. And she was it was kind of funny because she was a little bit and she's Polish also. So the language was kind of funny. She was people come and like really nothing happens. And they come from all these different places to do this yoga with you. And there's really nothing going on, but everybody's happy. And I said, well, how are you feeling right now? She said, well, I feel so much better. My back pain is just completely changed and I'm excited to go back and move and breathe. And I was like, yeah, nothing's happening. <laughs> but it should feel in a way like like nothing's happening because it's not a, a labored effort in a way. It's when nothing's happening and you're doing these things so much can happen. And I think that's kind of maybe the magic trick of all of these practices. It shouldn't feel hard in a way, yeah. even though it's hard. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I'm laughing because I was actually just <laughs> writing because I'm trying to finish this manuscript on the second book. And I was writing about this idea that I always say to people, it's like you do these small practices in Ayurveda, these different routines, these different self-care practices. And you think that they're the smallest thing, 
scraping your tongue, having warm water in the morning, whatever it is, right? For whatever's going on with you. And you're like, oh, it's so small. It's so little. I have people saying that to me all the time. Like, okay, really, what's that going to do? And I'm like, it does a lot because it's only when you don't do it that you're like, oh my God, that was helping me. Right. So it's sort of the same thing of what you're saying of like, well, nothing happened because we think that like, you know, these like this lightning shows going to come, you know, strike down from the heavens and like all of this like magic is going to happen. And it's going to be this big explosion of like, oh my gosh, look, I feel so much different. And I don't think that's the point. <laughs> so it makes me laugh that you're saying that because it's, it's such a beautiful example of of exactly that is that so much of what we do on a daily basis, every choice we make, like you said earlier, can either help us or not help us, can either support us or not support us, right? And so how can we start to do things that are supporting us more often without needing for some really big thing to happen? Yes. It's true. And I think we're so used, so many people are used to having their healing be sort of a punishment in a way or not feel good. Oh, if this is this really good for me thing, then it's going to feel terrible or painful or whatever it is. So when you're doing these things that actually work sustainably, like scraping your tongue and drinking the water and doing all of the Avanti checklist of amazing things and moving well and doing all of the things that I love to share it doesn't feel like you're hurting yourself because you're not. The healing practices are actually healing in the moment. <laughs> and I think for so many people, that's a huge obstacle. And I always see that whenever we get together in a big group, and thankfully I've been doing this for long enough that there's kind of 80% of people that have been doing this with me for a while or with each other. And then, and then a few people that are new and they always come up during the breaks and they say something like this. And it's always it's always a bit of an awkward moment for me to try to, with care and, and empathy, convince them that what we're doing is valuable without, you know, <laughs> freaking out myself, but also saying, yeah, crawling down to the ground and crawling back up. We did that for 10 minutes. It's good for you. You should do it every day. You know, we're not going to do plank poses and have each other stand on your back to build strength because that's just abusing you and actually not building strength. But you know, if you want somebody to yell at you, you're not going to find it here. You know, <laughs> And that's hard for people. So I think it's a real shift in, in hearing from more people like you that are saying, yeah, these things are small, but they're powerful. And, and they're not, they shouldn't feel like somebody's beating you up. Yeah. What's coming up for me as you're saying that is that this, this thought that I just had kind of that aha of especially in the United States, in this modern world, we live with this idea that anything worth doing has to be hard, that healing has to be hard. And that comes from the medical establishment. I mean, I can say this about Western medicine. I'm a, an MD, right? The way I was trained, you know, even the training that I went through was, was very trauma-inducing, you know, the kind of hours I worked, the kinds of things I was asked to do, right? And then the medicine that I was learning was also from this perspective of acute illness, you know, like let's take care of everything right now, which of course you need that, right, in an acute situation. But it's also always about this idea that healing is hard, that symptoms have to be cured and cut away, you know, things have to be removed, right? All of those things, which absolutely, to a certain extent, yes. 
But then there's the other piece of like, why does it always have to be like that? In an acute setting, of course. But then on a daily basis, why do we have to live in that way of thinking that it's only worth it if it's hard? It's only worth it if it hurts, if it feels uncomfortable, you know? That's what it's bringing up to me for me right now as you're saying that is that that's kind of how we've been like sort of brainwashed into thinking about how we live our lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something I really learned more language and more practice from Tai Chi. It's sort of, you know, there's a difference between just laying on the couch and watching TV, fine, and doing a plank pose without using one bit of extra energy. Because if you do that plank pose with all that you have, you can only do it for five seconds. And the value of that is pretty small. If you do that plank pose without one bit of extra energy, you can stay in that plank pose for a much longer time and your benefits are much more big. So you can only see it when you're doing the hard thing, but that's the method that gets you more. I mean, it sounds so Western to say like do less, get more, but that's that, I mean, that's really at the heart of what I've learned from you with Ayurveda and Tai Chi and Shiatsu, this Wu Wei, use what you need, rest what you don't. I mean, it's conservation of energy, conservation. That's what we all want with the environment, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but we're not doing it with ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally true. And I think you said is so profound also because there's only so much energy that we can tap. I mean, okay, there's an infinite source of energy in the world, but there's only so much we can do in a day, right? And so why not use the least amount of energy to do the most amount of good? either for ourselves and for other people, right? Because when you free up that energy, you have so much more to give to the world, right? To give to others. If, you know, living a life of service is the whole point of being here. And I truly believe that. Then when I, when I move in this way that conserves energy, that's more easeful and has more benefit to me, it also has more benefit to others. And that's the whole point of life from my perspective. So, yeah, no, I, Learn that from you. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, you know, so the last question I have, because I know we're coming up on time here, is what recommendations do you have if, you know, there's someone listening who really wants to learn more about this approach to trauma-informed yoga, either to guide other people or for themselves? What would you say would be some good resources, you know, books, trainings, anything? I know you guys do a training. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, I think your website is the best place to start. I mean, you offer so many resources and and things like you said that are simple, they're profound, but they'll get you started and they'll get you going forever on doing these things in your life. And I think that's really important. We have all the yoga stuff taken care of, but I I really I I believe people it works best for people when you do it as your whole life, not just in your yoga practice. And that's even what we talk about in our in our trauma-specific trainings is look at how you're walking up the stairs, look at how you're crawling down to the ground to begin your practice, and that will teach you a whole lot. So if you want more on that, we've we've got you covered for that. But getting into these healing arts that help you slow down, I love how you say when it's the fall, you can slow down a little bit. You can even change the colors on your couch cushions. You can bring in different things in your home that make you feel seasonal. And I think these are really important things to to help as well. 
you know, there's a million books now. Some of them that are great, I think, are more into the healing art side of things. Um, everybody loves the book, The Body Keeps the Score. I think that's a really big aha moment for so many people. We got to teach a workshop with that author. And it was interesting because he said there's a lot of research on Tai Chi for trauma because Tai Chi is not as popular and you can't really do it in a stressful way. I mean, you kind of can, but not really. But there's not as much research on yoga because yoga is so pose-based. So maybe that'll change when more people practice yoga in an easy, easier going way because I believe yoga is much more well, maybe just more applicable for us right now than Tai Chi, because as a form, you just can move in so many different ways. And Tai Chi, for me, feels like the overall philosophy for doing all of the things. And it can be a form too, but it's just on your legs and people's knees end up hurting with it. <laughs> so I think that's a really great start too. It's a really popular one. Uh, there's a great book if you're into shiatsu. It's kind of nerdy, but I love it. It's called The Web That Has No Weaver, and it can show you different points to lean on for yourself or with partners that, like you said earlier, you can immediately experience this energy in your body and this energy between yourself and someone else. And I think if somebody can experience that, that really changes everything in a moment. So any of these simple practices that are from the healing arts that that can help you feel that energy moving through you kind of like a super highway, then then you're good to start of sort of, you know, learn a bit more for sure. Yeah. No, and I and I think those are great books. We've talked about those books before. We'll make sure that we link those in the show notes as well as the Strala website and Tara's website so you can get all the information. They do some amazing trauma-informed yoga trainings for those of you who really want to dive into a lot more of the theory and all that kind of stuff. So I highly recommend those. I haven't taken them, but I've seen what you guys do and it's amazing. So, you know, make sure all of you who are listening who might be interested, check out those links in the show notes. Do you have any other thoughts that as we're like, you know, wrapping up the time here, talking about trauma? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's just, if it's something you're interested in, and we're all interested in it because it's the human experience too. Yes. I mean, you don't have to be someone that's been through a horrific one-time event. You know, it's sort of everybody and also being sympathetic and empathetic to other people's experiences. It's such an amazing topic to learn about. And I think doing a practice every day that helps you feel safe and connected is, is, is super necessary. And that's why we have all of our online stuff and the Strala app. And I know it's so corny, but I feel like it's really important, just like drinking water every day to do some sort of practice, whether it's doesn't need to be for your workout, but it can be just five minutes or 10 minutes every day on your own. And if you get to get together in a group of people, that becomes a huge luxury. That's amazing too. But you can practice what you learned from your 10, 20, whatever you have time minutes doing your yoga practice out when you're walking around. And for me right now, I mean, my life is pretty simple. I pick up Daisy from school. I drop her off. We walk around to the grocery store. We do the simple things. But in those moments, I can choose at pick up and drop off to get out of my car. And then all of a sudden, the other parents get out of their car too. And then we talk and we connect and we breathe and move together and make more relationships than if I just sat in my car. And same thing with walking around town. If we're open and we're breathing with ourselves, we feel better to, to talk to more people. And that feels better for so many reasons. And if you can take your practice and then look at your life and, and think about how, what do I want in my life? How do I want to feel? How can I change the things in my life based on how I move around and how I create this safe space for myself when I'm in my practice and out in the world as well, then I think it's a really worthwhile thing to spend time on for sure. Yeah. 
I love that. I love everything about what you just said. And I think that's a beautiful place for us to end our time on this podcast and we'll do more. Tara, thank you as always, my friend, my soul sister. I love you. And I just admire what you do so much in this world. I really do. The work you do is so important. So thank you. Thank you. Right back at you. You're the best. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember, with the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.